0: Hello, and welcome to our Bottom Line Views About News. I'm Eddie. And I'm Matthew. As always. So uh, this week, we had several things going wrong, I would say, right? We had an ice storm, the biggest ice storm, most dangerous ice storm in uh, Quebec since 1998. We also had a scandal involving Justice Clarence Thomas in the United States. And in Canada, Prince Edward Island just had its latest elections on April 3rd. So that's what we'll be discussing during today's podcast. So without further ado, let's begin. During the past week, over 1 million Quebecers had no power, because it was the biggest ice storm since 1998. I have to also clarify that the one in 1998 lasted for about three weeks. So what happened was uh, Hydro-Quebec brought back its former chief, Sophie Brochu. Basically, according to Hydro-Quebec, they deployed over 1,100 um, crew to go fix these power outages mainly due to freezing rain and trees uh, that had fallen down. Uh, so far, it is reported that there have been three deaths, one from Someone who had uh, the car and the generator on due to carbon monoxide in his garage. On top of that, phone lines were down by Rogers and Bell because of this. And what's really um, odd is how the West Island, in particular on the island of Montreal, were always the last to be catered to, even though that's where, even though Montreal is the largest metropolis in the province of Quebec. So, Did Hydro-Quebec handle this well? And keep in mind that even on the seventh day, there's still around 40,000 people
1: without power. Yeah. So I think they definitely could have handled it better. Mm. Uh, Right away, there was offers from other provinces to send their own Hydro workers to Quebec. Right. uh, especially Ontario, by the way. Yes. And uh, uh, Legault refused. He later then rescinded that refusal and asked for New Brunswick's help. Mm. But it was after, like, Better part of a week had passed, and people had been without power for well, again, at this point, people have been out of power for over a week. It's uh, it's kind of ridiculous that he, he I know I, I had no
0: power for five days,
1: I had no power for six days, exactly. Mm. Yes,
0: and uh, the sixth day, actually, you're right. Um, I had power come, uh, go out and
1: come back twice. Yeah, that never well, it did happen to me, but it only went out once, mm. so it came back and it went out, they came back oh, permanently. The, the, the thing that I'm besides Hydro Quebec, the thing that I'm really confused about was Rogers and Bell. So, okay. at the same time as, as power went out, all cell receptions so basically text, phone lines, and data so, internet on your phone all went out for a good chunk of the island of Montreal. Honestly, that seems to be unacceptable because it meant emergency services could not be contacted if anything happened. Uh, luckily things didn't get that bad. But it was an ice storm, trees had fallen, and people couldn't even contact 911. It's that's frankly was unacceptable to me. And there should be a public inquiry into Bell and Bell and Rogers in their security of the of the uh of the phone lines.
0: I I think there should be a public inquiry, first of all, on the handling of Hydro Quebec.
1: Yes, number that was. Awesome.
0: And Francois Legault's handling. Um by the way, um there's also a discussion that came out is time to finally consider transforming our, our electrical grid and how we deliver it in Canada, particularly, um, and transform it into going more underground. I know that us, I know it's a warmer country, but Australia does this already, yeah. and it's ten ten times much safer and uh, more durable. But it's also much more costly. In fact, on April sixth, uh, Quebec Premier Francois Legault was asked why haven't we considered this, and he responded by saying that it would cost
1: Quebecers around hundred billion dollars. Now, what he didn't say mm-hmm. is the the hundred billion dollar number he's referencing is for transforming the entire grid underground, not key infrastructure, which is uh, something he didn't want to. For some reason, jumped around. And there's also the fact that he's, not, he's, not, he's also not uh, talking about how it would, if this is only for new lines underground, how much that would cost.
0: Well, let's not forget that there's already a cost either way. Yes. For and damages, let's begin with that, and also an economic output. Okay. Let's go with that too. And also by that logic, oh, well, let's not invest in anything to fix anything. Right? Our healthcare system, our education system, our roads, highways, infrastructure. Let's just keep the money all for ourselves and not spend anything. Right? Should uh, Canada and Quebec ask Hydro Quebec uh, to pay compensation in terms of damages to Quebecers, especially those who had
1: longer power outages? Well, here's the thing Hydro Quebec is a monopoly. I think whenever you have any monopoly whatsoever, and especially once a government monopoly like Hydro-Quebec is, is a crown corporation, there needs to be very, very, very high standards that they have to be held to. And I think the way this was done was on the unacceptable side. And even though it was difficult, it it was difficult. And I can tell some of the workers did their best. The fact that this was allowed to happen in this way shows a lack of planning, preemptive planning on uh, Hydro-Quebec's part. And there definitely needs to be an investigation and compensation for those who have been without power for over a week at this point.
0: I just want to make a correction on what you said. Um, Hydro-Quebec is not a crown corporation. It's owned 100% by the Quebec government. But it is, um, well, it is a monopoly. Yes. And I do think you're right on that point. In fact, I was going to mention it. We have this problem because of lack of competition in this uh, energy sector. I think that's the case. Because... You would have, uh, let's say Bell, Videotron, also offered uh, electricity and power to consumers. Well, they would also have uh, deployment crew in place to cater to their customers, which probably would have put uh, a higher pressure on them to be prepared during these events, assuming labor shortage isn't an issue. What do you think about that idea? Do you think more, um,
1: having more competition and less of a monopoly would have solved it? It's a little complex because in Quebec, we only use hydroelectricity. Mm. And you can't really depend on the private sector to build hydroelectric dams, even though we probably are underutilizing our own uh, water power here. Yeah, we definitely are. Yes. So I think we could have some form of incentive, a private incentive, to at least like, build more dams, to build more infrastructure. But I do think we still need that public side because it's, again, hydroelectricity. You need high standards for the dams. A mistake can can kill more people than, obviously, the ice storm only killed three people. But a mistake with a dam can flood an entire area. So we do need some government intervention here. But we do need some private intervention, probably some of the infrastructure, maybe some of the power lines, maybe some of the uh, financing for building new dams. And as well, uh, we, we export a lot of our excess energy to the United States. But because, there's a, because it's a government corporation, there's not really an incentive to increase that, even though we can really, we probably could create a private incentive to build more infrastructure and expand our power grid.
0: Look, here's what I, I've said this in the past also. Um, China is able to build a complete hospital in 10 days without worrying about the cost. In North America, uh, in, in let's say in the U.S., California particularly, um, like I'm for regulation, but I, I'm not sure if regulation is the issue here. I'm just saying uh, domestic production is probably the issue as well. Uh, having too much red tape and high cost to production are the major deterrents on why things don't get done and also the lack of willingness. Yes. So if, when Francois Legault says $100 billion, I mean, perhaps it's a necessary investment to ensure the safety of our infrastructure, is it not? I thought that was the main priority in terms of infrastructure planning. Or is it the fault of urban planners and the Quebec government that uh, should really be at fault also giving François Legault bad advice? I'm not sure
1: what the real issue is. with and that. At the same time, I just want to point out, Legault only been in power for four years. Let's also put the blame on previous governments as well. Well, it's
0: a, it's his fifth.
1: Yes. Technically. All well, 50 years. But- uh even though Legault is at fault, it's also the fault of previous governments for not planning for this as well. Yeah. Legault is just currently in power, so he gets the blame.
0: Well, is he getting enough of a blame? I don't think so.
1: No, but that's because French media tends to go nice on him.
0: Yeah, I agreed. Um, so should there be compensation for Quebecers, uh, specifically those in Montreal who suffered the most from this?
1: At the very least, uh, for things that are like repairs, for example, people had to hire master electricians to fix their homes afterwards. Mm. They also need to throw out probably hundreds of dollars of groceries. Some people can't afford that, especially with inflation at the moment. So probably for some people, but not necessarily for everyone. Right. Um,
0: I think there should be at least uh a co- damages paid out uh, for one bill uh for free from hydro, no matter what that amount is. Um, it's the least they could do since we have no choice, but to be their consumers in co- yeah. quote unquote, um, because we can't switch, what are we going to do? Go to Ontario with Hydro one. Yes. We can't do that legally. So we're kind of, kind of stuck with them and there's really no measure to hold them accountable other than having
1: compensation paid out to Quebecers. Yeah. Oh, uh, so one more thing before we end, uh. Even though uh, Hydro Quebec is owned by the Quebec government, a lot of the money that the, the uh, company makes actually goes paid out to shareholders of yeah. FTQ, which is the weird Quebec uh, Quebec-owned, like Quebec government-owned uh, mutual fund company.
0: Well, it's Fédération des travailleurs du de Québec. Yes, uh, for those
1: it's it's a very weird thing where you're like buying equity in public companies, mm. and it's very weird to get a tax benefits for investing into it, and then the government uses that money to reinvest further into these uh, infrastructure projects. So what ends up happening is the the profits of Hydro-Quebec get paid out to the investors as dividends. And maybe it's time we also look into that again and see if that's actually some way we want to, if we actually do want to privatize things in that specific way.
0: Um, going back, I, I forgot to ask you for a definitive bottom line answer. Should power be underground in Quebec and in
1: Canada? Or is it too costly in your view? In key areas, yes. Not necessarily every power line, but if something's a very critical area, it absolutely should be underground.
0: I'm So, so you're sort of in agreement with me yes. about key areas. Okay, moving on to the Prince Edward Island elections. First of all, it was they only had one debate that was on CPAC that I had to, the uh, liberty to watch, But surprisingly, everyone was on the same page about affordable housing, um, which is a very uh, liberal stance to take compared to uh, the conservative uh, uh, incumbent, uh, Premier, sharing that view and having very similar policies about that, right? So in 2019, which was the last time Prince Edward Island had an election, they changed uh, who would be in government. So. Last time around, uh, the Conservative Party won government with 13 seats, Greens were in opposition with 8, and the Liberals lost with and went down to 6 seats. Even though the popular vote disparity was very close, 36, 30 and uh 29%. This time around on April 3rd, the Liberal trend was really really downwards. And so was the Green trend downwards. In fact, Um, the Liberals are in opposition now with only three seats losing from their initial six. And it was the largest conservative win in PEI history with 55.9% of the vote going towards them with 22 seats, literally wiping everybody else out.
1: How many total seats are there in legislature?
0: Uh, That's a good question. I think there ought to be 27. So 22 seats. That's That's a whole lot of seats.
1: That's that's a very big landslide for people.
0: Yeah, and it seems to be a trend going onwards in the country. Actually, conservative trend going really upwards, and regressive and even liberal trends going downwards.
1: Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, uh, in Canada we tend to have trends where the uh, the conservatives will just dominate for a while, and the liberals will come back and dominate for a while. It's a weird trend going back to say the, to the probably the eighties where uh, Mulroney won a massive landslide in 84, and then basically he lost a massive landslide in 93, I believe. Mm. And then it's this back and forth, back and forth, where it seems to be we're on the cuffs of a of a conservative push. Now, it's happening a lot on the provincial side. We'll have to see what it happens on the federal side as well, because the conservative leader has been not the most popular, and was probably the lesser of the choices they could have picked to lead the party.
0: Well, okay, so going back to the total number of seats in PI, as I calculated, is uh, 27. Uh, So 22 out of 27, that's a wipeout. Yes. Okay. Um, Is it a trend going around the country? hundred percent. It seems like we're going literally back in the 1980s, 1990s, during the Thatcher-Reagan era, really. Um, So does this mean that um, liberal slash progressive policies have really failed us? I don't know if that's really the sentiment, I think, in terms of political psychology. You're noticing a trend where people are just tired of inaction, of not acting fast enough. Interestingly enough, though, uh, American polls suggest that more progressive candidates are more likely to act on things. As you saw in Biden's uh, first two years, they were blaming him for believing too much in bipartisanship rather than acting. So... I'm pretty sure that's the real reason behind this sentiment. So there's a lot of anger and this, uh, disenchantment and despair, and I think that's why you're noticing these trends. However, if there's so much anger and disenchantment, why did the conservative get
1: reelected? with a biggest
0: conservative? And, and P.I. is usually liberal.
1: I think the reason is just the way people perceive things. Trudeau is a liberal par- a member of the Liberal Party of Canada. Mm. The Liberal party of uh, in p i is not actually affiliated with the federal liberals, but people associated them with them, so even though the, the incumbent was a conservative, they felt that the conservative was the opposition just because Trudeau is in power federally. It feels a little bit like that's how it tends to work in Canada. but mm. if you're power federally, every local a local election where a party with the same name is running. Is the automatic deemed to be incumbent, even turn, the opposition?
0: I also think that uh, people in the Atlantic regions, and such as demonstrated in PEI, are, are much more in favor of stability. Yes, um, which is uh, quite rare actually, because Atlantic regions tend to be much more liberal. That also brings me to a discussion about Alberta. Uh, uh, so Alberta's provincial election is going to be on May 29th of this year, and uh, right now the polls are still tight. So we were talking about trends. The conservatives are dead uh, in a dead heat race with the NDP, Rachel Notley, who was the former premier, by the way. Um, and uh, liberals are definitely not doing well, but it's sort of like this um, struggle between the right and the left of center.
1: Yeah. It's very important to point out. Rachel Notley is the most center left of the NDP yeah. probably in the country. The NDP tends to be more further left. Mm-hmm. Rachel Notley is an Alberta NDP. Yeah, it's different. Which, which is basically... She's a of oil. She's a liberal anywhere else in the country.
0: Yeah. Um, the top issues, according to the last polls, suggest in Alberta, it's healthcare and the cost of living. I would say cost of living is going to have a better impact yeah. in terms of messaging, or let me rephrase that. Uh, political parties need to work on their messaging quite heavily with cost of living, because Healthcare's always been an issue and I think the same solutions
1: have always been offered. There's also a very weird political culture in Alberta. I was there a couple of years ago and there's a little bit of a hive mind on certain issues. Where whether you're more on the left or right, there tends to be a hive mind, say on the oil industry. Yeah. Where we were going to uh two restaurants owned by Chinese immigrants and they st- and when they heard like uh or when we talked to politics with them they, they even mentioned the oil industry where they're, they're immigrants to the region. They run a burger stand, and they still cared about oil. It's in ingrained culturally, yes. I think, over there. It's it's a very different mentality than it is elsewhere in the country. It's sort of like a cultural trait to care about the oil industry there.
0: Well, also, it's what they produce mainly in that province, too. So mm-hmm. that's why it's heavily ingrained. Even though it's, I think, misplaced, because there should be multiple uh, streams of revenue and or production. I would say output. I think for any economy to just rely on one source of output is dangerous. Yes. As you saw during COVID, right? Because if you're losing on that front, you're not getting output anywhere else. This podcast episode is brought to you by Cara Strategies, because at Cara Strategies, we believe in strategizing fearlessly so that you can succeed relentlessly. Moving on to the States, the biggest news right now in terms of Clarence Thomas is the fact that for the last, well, more than two decades, supposedly, um, journalists suddenly found this out now. He's been offered financial support, I guess, or funded trips by a Republican billionaire, Harlan Crowe, who's a Texas billionaire. And apparently every year he goes on trips, a yacht trip that costs at least half a million dollars. And he's been doing this for more than 20 years. And the fact, well, the, what's really the cause uh, at issue here is the fact that he never disclosed any of these trips. Because according to him, they've been friends for the last twenty-five years. And what's even more ironic about the situation is the fact that he's been on the Supreme Court of the United States for thirty-one years. So, do you think anything unethical and/or illegal is going on here?
1: Honestly, I have no idea. Because even though, like, the way the news is framing this. He's giving questions like he's giving me questions about whether they actually have a news story here or if they're trying to dig to try and find something. Because you you heard
0: So let me rephrase the question for you. Do you think it is customary to report, disclose, any trips that are funded by a specific political party when you're in the judiciary?
1: But it wasn't funded by a political party, it was funded by someone who happened to also be a donor. But that's not right. the political party.
0: Someone affiliated specifically to a political party, but he's not. He's not affiliated with the party. He's part of with uh, the Texas GOP. He's a main uh, contributor.
1: But he's a contributor. That doesn't mean he's a member of the of the legislator and like that. For example, if if someone's a donor to a party, it doesn't necessarily take, make them a political actor. For
0: um... so the same can be said about a corporation, no?
1: I mean, that's literally what uh, that what is illegal, is, by the way
0: corporations giving money, in Canada too.
1: But it wasn't giving him your money. He went on a trip with the guy.
0: So, yeah, that's th- that's basically the news story.
1: Yes. Is it unethical? So That's thing? what I was about to say before you got me off. Where he, he went on a vacation mm-hmm. with a friend who happened to give him I don't know if anything bad happened. It could be. It could be everything we assume about this is true. What I'm saying is we don't actually know yet.
0: No, the journalists are reporting it, so they have evidence. They're not just going to report on something. But uh, it's not he transfer money, you know what I mean? It's rips that are being funded by his buddy. So yeah. it's another form of, uh, well, according to the, some of the journalists reporting no, on but, this, but bribery.
1: Again, that's, in a, that's the allegation that hasn't been proven. You're trying to prove, like, first of all, he's the court justice, he's not a politician. You need to justify he, everything he writes or every decision he makes has a massive document where he justifies it. So to call it bribery would require you to prove that a decision was influenced by by the uh, the trips, and it just I don't see the evidence yet. It's possible it could be, but I'm looking at the evidence and it just doesn't. It's not there yet, and that's just my word, my problem.
0: So a very similar thing happened in Canada a few years back with uh, Finance Minister at the time Bill Morneau, yeah. uh, where. He had forgotten to disclose a 30 ish 1000 dollars check that he had received, and he had to resign and retire from politics altogether. Was, there was the element of collu- possible collusion, and
1: it was highly unethical. That's not the same, because Bill Marnot was an elected politician. Okay,
0: but here's the thing. You're assuming pub- the highest public office and the judiciary, still another branch of
1: government. The difference is that the... It's based on the, the uh, legal precedent. So again, he writes out an explanation for every decision he had That's ever made. That's not
0: related to this at all. It's the fact that you're holding public office and getting paid for...
1: But he's not getting paid. He's going on a trip. That's the difference.
0: Every year, half million dollar trips. Yeah.
1: Have you never gone on a trip with a friend?
0: That's not paid for.
1: Yeah, but it's different. For example...
0: I pay for my trips. I don't know what type of a sugar daddy I would need. <laughs> That's right. I personally, look, um, obviously, this kind of thing would not happen in Canada. Justices
1: would never be in the news this much like this. Also, I just want to say that I'm not, again, my entire point is we don't have evidence of anything. There's a lot of allegations going around. Mm. And again, when I have evidence, I'll I'll make a decision, but there's been no evidence of anything other than people saying that that trips were taken. But then there's all these allegations about other stuff, there's no evidence. Again, it's, it's, immor- it's probably immoral they took the trips. But then when you're trying to uh, make the allegation of bribery, that's a, that's a step far above. Okay,
0: so let's rewind a little bit. The other thing with Clarence Thomas, especially last year, was uh, his wife, Ginny Thomas, and the scandals revolving around her being heavily involved with Steve Bannon and the Trump team. Uh, and that's why also it was an, a major issue the fact that Jimmy Thomas was heavily influencing Trump decisions and also was influencing how Clarence Thomas would rule. And it's not hearsay or allegations. They were proven in court thanks to text message trails uh, and WhatsApp messages. And recently with Fox News, with the Dominion lawsuit, same type of evidence uh, surfaced with regards to Sean Hannity's text messages, Tucker Carlson's things like that. So it's one thing to say it's only one newspaper, news outlet reporting on. This I vaccine. did see that. It's another thing. No, no, I'm not blaming you for it. But um, it's another thing to say that there is surmounting uh, questions regarding
1: questionable finances. About what? Again, you're making an. You're making an. Uh, what's the word? A. Uh you're making an inference that something happened, but you're not saying what happened. It's, it's one of those things where I feel like people are looking for something, but they don't have any evidence But why would of you it hide it, it? We don't know if he did.
0: According to him, he did. According to literally him, as I said during the introduction of the segment, crypts would not be disclosed because at the advice of his friends, they've been friends for 25 years. That's the excuse he gave. Now, if if don't forget the supreme court is, is the highest form, it's the highest court of any land like it, it's it's a, it has to have a a different standard than the lower courts and what's really surprising is there is no reporting standards established by chief justice uh roberts even the, these key, things keep on happening
1: right um but again, you're, you're, that's the, exactly the point. He didn't disclose it because nothing's been disclosed. For all we know, everyone in the courts can be doing this. And that's it. But my problem is that they're looking at specific people to find things for specific justices that journalists tend not to like. And that's and that's been happening for the last couple of years, hmm. where there's been a massive politicization of the courts, where where journalists only look at certain justices and not any other justices. I think that I definitely think there needs to be standard reporting for uh, for justices, but I think just the way it's happened, where just things come out, it's like, oh, let's for everything. Like you showed me Stephen Colbert before, where he was inferring that Justice Thomas was a Nazi, and I feel like that's just the Texas
0: billionaire Harlem. No, no, no. no. But the only reason
1: he brought that up is to infer that Justice Thomas. It's an inference. Hmm. It's you don't bring it up unless you're trying to bring it uh, connected to Justice Thomas. It's absolutely ridiculous this politicalization of the courts. If he does something wrong, he did something wrong. There's a there's, but we don't know if everyone in the courts are doing this, and that's my problem.
0: Well, we do need, you believe the in the courts?
1: It's not by uh, it's not partisan at all in the states. It's it can be partisan, but not in the way people are using the term. I think what what's happening. Why? The parties have very distinct legal philosophies, and I think that is clear. And the irony is that the political philosophies of the parties have actually switched. During FDR's time, they were originalists, the Democrats. Because uh especially for JFK, uh constructivist judges uh used constructivist um uh, constructivist arguments to strike down New Deal, parts of the New Deal. So the Democrats became uh became uh become originalists. This changed what are originalists, by the way. Originalists are people who believe that the Constitution is as written. It needs to be interpreted as written by the founding fathers. Yes, Whereas, uh uh, what's the word? The other one. I'm sorry, I'm liking on it. The um, growers, something like that. Uh, growing tree doctrine. That's the word.
0: So the so ca- Canadian uh, in the Canadian judiciary, it's more modern. It's uh, the belief that the Constitution should be interpreted as society progresses and evolves, which is what modern doctrine is in the states as well. Majority of the time, yes, even conservative right. justice chief Justice right. Roberts.
1: But again, my point is-, is not an originalist,
0: but yeah, uh, those who are more originalist tend to be targeted as what you're trying to get
1: at. Yes, I, I feel like the courts in general, mm. where people people have assumed that any legal argument that doesn't match a political opinion is completely invalid, and I see this a lot. Where there was a Supreme Court justice uh, race in uh, Wisconsin recently. And I, I thought both sides were bad because they were making political arguments about legal procedures. Like the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate, like they, they weren't labeled as Democrats Republican, but they clearly were. And they were making political arguments rather than legal arguments in their campaigns. And I don't really like that. Are they not
0: both the same? Because technically, laws are based off legal principles,
1: but they're based off what's written. Not off of uh, not It depends. Minutes. So
0: keep in mind, in the U.S., it's a common law system. It's based on previous judge decisions, um, jurisprudence, right? Uh, but yeah, look, I- I'm in favor of having everything reported, Yes. Uh, especially if you're in the highest public offices in a uh, democracy. Yes. Um, surely, we don't want uh, mistakes and irre- irregularities happening again and i think it's time but for i think, I think you know, roberts to put, put his foot on the uh uh you know um
1: on the ground and take action but if that happens it needs to be for all yeah. the judges
0: cuz i actually don't believe judges are 100% impartial they have their own political philosophy when they come into the job
1: they have their own they have their own uh, uh judicial philosophy also but the thing is that when when the when the media is like singling out specific judges that's why i don't like For example, if Justice Sotomayor did the same thing, we would never hear a peep of it.
0: I disagree. I think you'd hear it a lot
1: on more conservative. You would hear it, but again, you would hear it on partisan news. Mm. You know, you wouldn't hear it on late night shows. Um, That's a debate for another time.
0: So this has been our bottom line views about news. As
1: always, I'm Eddie. I'm Matthew, and just so we're clear, I'm not actually just tired of Hopkins. I just I just needed to bring out that I thought this was a little. Uh, a little yes. Yes. <laughs> Noted. I think we got that. <laughs> all right. And we
0: all wish you a great rest of the week. Until next time.